The community wanted someone to pay. Lawrence Williams, who was the likely trigger man, he was already dead. So they needed someone to pay. And they wanted, you know, an African-American person, despite evidence to the contrary. Welcome to Labor History Today. With the trial for the three white men charged with killing black jogger Ahmad Arbery, now underway in Glynn County, Georgia, it seems like a good time to get a little historical perspective and find out what a murder case in 1930s Mississippi reveals about race relations, criminal justice, and life in the Jim Crow South. So today, from the archives of the Working History podcast, Karen Cox, professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, discusses her book, Goat Castle, a true story of murder, race, and the Gothic South, and its tale of a toxic stew of white privilege, racism, and rage. As Cox says, this story offers us a window into how the criminalization of black lives emerged as a means of sustaining white supremacy and control over African Americans in the post-slavery period. It's why, she says, so many black Southerners migrated out of the region to northern cities like Detroit and Chicago, hoping for better, not that they found it. Racism followed African Americans wherever they went. Just as Ahmad Arbery's family nearly a century later. On this week's Labor History in Two... The year was 1945. That was the day that 320,000 United Auto Workers went out on strike against General Motors. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today I'm speaking with Karen Cox, professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She is the author or editor of several books, including Dixie's Daughters, The United Daughters of the Confederacy, and The Preservation of Confederate Culture, and most recently, Goat Castle, A True Story of Murder, Race, and the Gothic South, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Karen Cox, welcome to Working History. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Your most recent book, Go Castle, looks at the events surrounding the murder of Jane Merrill, known to most as Jenny, in Natchez, Mississippi, on the night of August 4th, 1932. To start us off, can you briefly discuss what took place that night? Sure. Um, A number of the principals that are in this story um, had... um, plotted basically to rob Jenny Merrill. They were both uh, uh, white and black Natchezians. Um, 
And um, at any rate, um, the it's in the depths of the Depression. They assumed Jenny Merrill had money, which she did. She just didn't keep it at home. And so the robbery uh, went bad, and she was um, probably put up a fight and ended up losing her life as a result. She was shot and killed in her home uh, in this botched robbery. Um, and, and then things just begin to unravel after that. In the book, you introduce a number of principals, Jenny Merrill, Dick Dana, Octavia Dockery, Lawrence Williams, who uh, has a number of aliases. He goes by Pinckney, Pink, um, George Pearls. We also have Emily Burns, uh, Jenny's cousin, Duncan Minor, the town of Natchez itself. To set the stage for us, can you talk about what Natchez was like? What was it like in its antebellum heyday, first of all? And then how had it changed by the time of Jenny Merrill's murder in 1932? Natchez is really quite fascinating. Um, it was It's a small town on the bluffs of the Mississippi River, about an hour south of Vicksburg, um, about an hour north of Baton Rouge. And... Um, in the antebellum period, Natchez uh, was sort of one of the towns that was at the center of uh, the cotton boom, the antebellum cotton boom that had a boom in the 1830s and again in the 1850s. And this led a lot of uh, not just southern planters to invest in land um, uh, in that area in the lower Mississippi Valley, but also a lot of northern investors. Uh, men from New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania. They headed to the Deep South uh, to buy up a lot of the land, invest in that cotton. And so uh, Natchez became, um, uh, was at the center, too, of the domestic slave trade because it was going to require a lot of um, slaves in order to uh, produce that cotton. And so many of the nearly one million slaves, men, women, and children who were um, forced um, to migrate to the Deep South, were sold in the town of Natchez uh, and then put to work on plantations in uh, Mississippi and Louisiana across the river where most of the plantations were and essentially uh, made millionaires out of these men. And so Natchez was known um, at the beginning of um, right before the Civil War as this, this town of millionaires, that there were more millionaires per capita in Natchez than in the entire United States. And then, of course, uh, the Civil War came. It ended slavery. Um, and in the in the decades that followed, Natchez changed quite a bit. Uh, many of those um, planters left the area. Some stayed. Uh, you see the emergence of a Jewish mercantile class in Natchez. And then you move, you know, fast forward into uh, the 20th century. Natchez is becoming, you know, less a notable town because uh, – the river traffic dries up. There's no, this makes it very, very hard to get to Natchez. There's no roads there. There's a train nearby, but that's about it. And then by 1932, and we're in the depths of the depression. And, um, you know, basically all Natchez has left is, you know, these buildings, these homes that were representative of their former glory, but Natchez was no longer that town um, that it had once been. Um, and Jenny Merrill, who was a descendant of the planter class, that's, you know, why partly why the story is uh, made national headlines, uh, was descended from the 
most elite of that original planner class. Um, and then, you know, the African-Americans who are part of this case are the descendants of the slaves that worked those plantations. So to pick up on this, then, uh, in many ways, Go Castle does tell the story of the decline of the planter class in the decades following the Civil War. How do we see this through the characters, if you want to call them that, of Jenny Merrill, of Dick Dana, of Octavia Dockery, and even of Goat Castle itself that really becomes its own spectacle? Sure. Um, Jenny Merrill and her cousin Duncan Minor were both uh, descendants of great planter wealth. Um, the two probably major families, um, not only in Natchez, but the, in the entire South. And, um, they, over the course of several decades, they, you know, the, the family still had money. Um, even when her father lost everything, you know, lost, um, slaves, he had, had, he owned something like 600 slaves, um, uh, which made him, you know, he was in the top 1%. Um, and, and so, but even after he had lost all that, he had a home in New York, he moved to New York after the war, um, and he built a home in 1866 in Newport, Rhode Island. I mean, these people had money coming out their ears. And so, um, but, you know, and so even though he had died in the, in the interim, Jenny had inherited a lot of money. She still owned a lot of land. And so she was, she was still okay um, by 1932, as was her, um, as was her cousin, Duncan Minor. Um, and so, uh, but on the other hand, the, her neighbors, Dick Dana and Octavia, um, Dockery, um, were also descendants of Southern elites and they had lost everything. They, uh, Octavia in particular is interesting because she's a, her, her father was a planter in Arkansas um, had lost and then lost everything uh, during the Civil War, and um, he immediately went into great decline. He was one of those. He had he was a planter that had maybe twenty twenty five slaves, which would have made him wealthy man. But when he lost that, he had nothing else. Whereas the Merrill family had diverse investments, um, and so they were going to be fine. Uh, whereas someone like um, I, uh, Octavia Dockery's father, Thomas Dockery, he just he just lost everything and went into a steep decline. And so she was born in 1865 and she basically does not get to inherit, you know, uh, the mantle of Southern Belle and the lady of, you know, the plantation, et cetera. And so she is uh, we'll find her in the by the 1890s already like boarding with her brother-in-law and her sister and. And she ends up moving into um, the estate uh, with Dick Dana. And Dick Dana is a descendant of um, of the Danas of New England. He's <laughs> related um, to ministers, but also a second cousin to um, Charles Dana, who the publisher of the New York Sun. I mean, he he's he's also descendant, um, but he is he's basically. Um, become mentally unstable, and he's not able to maintain his inheritance, which is Glenwood, the house that becomes known as Goat Castle. So you have this white pair on one side who still maintains some of the wealth, and then this pair on the other, which is 
Octavia Dockery and Dick Dana who are unmarried, but who are living just basically to, to survive. They live together at, at, at the estate um, who represent the complete you know, loss of all that wealth uh, by 1932. And can you tell us why the house that Dana and Dockery lived in comes to be called Go Castle? Okay, so Glenwood was a really nice home. <laughs> um, but by 1932, I mean, it was in complete rack and ruin. But but Dick Dana and Octavia Dockery were still living in the home uh, with a, a menagerie of animals. But they were known because they kept a pen of goats inside of the house, which had been the room was, I think, the former uh, dining room of the home. Um, you have to understand this was like a two-story house. It had a upper porch, a lower porch, it had four chimneys. I mean, it was a you know, you know, a typical antebellum mansion on the outskirts of 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 Natchez. But it was crumbling down around them, and and it was just absolute filth inside. We'll be get the nickname Goat Castle when this um, murder story gets goes nationwide. And what can we learn about the economics of post-Civil War Natchez and the wider Jim Crow South through the stories of Lawrence Williams and Emily Burns, the two um, African-American principals in this story? Lawrence Williams was about 20 years older than Emily. He was born in 1870. Um, he grew up in that, you know, time in Mississippi, which was really pretty awful for African-Americans. I mean, they're, you know... You know, whatever the Freedmen's Bureau tried to accomplish was, you know, was being negated by former planners. Uh, there was, you know, and uh, we see, you know, the, you know, the rights of the convict lease system, uh, you know, just laws that were put into place that just, you know, basically erased any kind of rights that they may have gained um, after the Civil War. And so Lawrence Williams grows up in that, uh, and by World War One, he joins you know, other uh, African-Americans in the Great Migration North, and he headed to Chicago, uh, where he found a job in the Argo plant outside of Chicago in the area called Summit. He, um, he worked, you know, the, the, um, uh, that makes the uh, cornstarch. <laughs> and so he was there, you know, he, he, that's where he had found a job, had married and, and was living before, you know, the Depression hit, and he had he returned to Natchez to look for work. Um, and it was, you know, he came back to Natchez um, and he, he he went to Jenny Merrill's house and he went to Duncan Minor and he was trying to find work and he was unable to find any work there. Um, Emily, on the other hand, is a, born in 1890s. And so she's one of those African-Americans uh, whose family did not leave Natchez, did not migrate. And they stayed in 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 the town of Natchez, uh, like a lot of African Americans after the Civil War. They left plantations and moved into towns, and they did that in Natchez as well. And um, so she grew up there. And like many Black women, um, you know their their job opportunities were very limited to basically domestic work. And so um, while she did marry, she was a widow by 1930. And so was her mother. And so they lived together in a little shack um, uh, in the in the black uh, neighborhood um, along St. Catherine Street, which was the black business district in Natchez. Because of the Depression, uh, she and her mother took in borders, uh, which is how she came to meet Lawrence Williams. He came to live 
in the house with she and her mother. So on the night of Jenny Merrill's murder, uh, essentially what happens is Dana and Dockery um, hatch a plan, if you will, to to rob her house and uh, enlist Williams, Lawrence Williams, to to be part of this. Emily Burns gets caught up in the uh, what turns into a robbery gone bad uh, when she goes out for a walk with Williams. Um, he ultimately will threaten her life, saying if she leaves or if she tells anyone, he will kill her. And so Emily stays outside Merrill's home while Dockery, Dana, and Williams uh, presumably go inside. Uh, shots are fired. Jenny is is killed. And then they dispose of her body. Um, immediately following the murder and the discovery of, of Jenny Merrill's body, the investigation turns up lots of evidence. Um, arguably, the most damning pieces of evidence initially are the fingerprints that were found inside Merrill's home of Dick Dana, of Octavia Dockery, and then of a third person who is later discovered to be Lawrence Williams. Dana Dockery and then eventually Emily Burns and her mother Nellie Black are detained by local authorities. But here the story takes very different turns for the white principals, Dana and Dockery, and the African-American principals, Williams Burns and also um, Emily Burns's mother Nellie Black. So uh, let's start with Lawrence, quote unquote, Pink Williams, as um, Emily knows him and Emily Burns. What happens with them? Conversely, what happens for Dick Dana and Octavia Dockery? Okay, well, it's clear that Dana and Dockery and Emily and and Pink are all at, at Merrill's house that evening. And so um, he leaves town. He heads back to Chicago um, and leaves his belongings behind at her house but because he, he's got to get out of town quickly. And so he heads north. Um, and he and within like three days after the the murder of Jenny Merrill um, at her home, he's arrest well an attempted arrest of him in Pine Bluff, Arkansas turns into his being shot and killed by the um, local police deputy who thinks he's resisting arrest, which is a very familiar story today, um, right? And and so he's now out of the picture. I mean, he can't be investigated obviously at this point. So. So that leaves Emily and then um, and she will be uh, and people locals will kind of say, well, he was staying with her. And uh, so they go arrest her and her mother and take her to jail. Of course, Dick Dana and Octavia Dockery are also in jail at this point because their fingerprints had been found inside the house. But within about 10 days, there's a lot of, you know, outcry in the local white community about these poor white people about, you know, had fallen on hard times, but who are also, you know, descended from, you know, elites, which is, you know, a, a thing of value in a community like Natchez. So they're allowed to go home on their own recognizance while Emily and her mother remain in the local jail uh, awaiting their fate. And they're there for for months, right? Yeah, they're there for four months and they, they are not allowed an attorney, uh, whereas you know, Dana and Dockery have attorneys volunteering for them. I mean, it's, it's such a, a, such a clear case of the, the double standard of justice just from, from the, from the beginning. 
there's like, you know, attorneys for white people, but no attorneys for the black people. There are people allowed to visit and interview um, Dana and Dockery about their lives. You know, nobody's allowed to come, you know, doing this for Emily uh, and her mother. Um, You know, the only visitor that they're allowed is the minister. And that's because the local sheriff hopes that, you know, the minister will convince Emily to confess. And she ultimately does give a quote unquote confession. Can you talk a little bit about the the circumstances of that? Right. Well, she's being, you know, interviewed, you know, several hours a day and it takes about eight days and she's not saying anything um, for all that time. And then one of the um, uh, deputies, the, a person, a special deputy who had been deputized for this particular case lays a bullwhip on the table and says, you've got 30 minutes to confess. And she will say at trial, I said what I said basically because I did not want to be whipped. And that's just like so heartbreaking to me um, to think about a person who essentially was just living a, you know, a normal life and someone comes into her life that, gets her involved in this terrible, you know, robbery gone bad. She didn't know she was just going for a walk with him. Lawrence Williams pink to her for the evening and, you know, everything goes awry. And so it's just, it's just a a sad thing because she's, you know, she's stuck because he's, you know, she doesn't want to rat him out. (laughs) Uh, She also um, is scared to death. Um, cause all these white men are berating her around the, you know, these, the table. And, um, uh, and so she does confess, but under duress. While all that is going on, you, uh, you know, on the other side, as you said, Dick Dana and, and Octavia Dockery are out there being interviewed, um, and they start to make money or try to start to make money off of their sort of 15 minutes of fame. So what's happening there on that side of it? Natchez is an interesting place because that spring before this murder, you know, it was the very first pilgrimage of Holmes, which I was already drawing tourists and had, you know, you know, Natchez was already kind of known. I mean, the, you know, the New York Times had had written articles about the Natchez pilgrimage that, you know, your, you know, Northerners and Midwesterners were, had been traveling there. So they were aware of what, where Natchez was. Um, and so, but when this events came out and the, just the, the, the quirky nature of Goat Castle, you know, Dick Dana's odd behavior, uh, in the story that was, the media was generating, um, people started coming in to Natchez to see this place, even while Dana and Dockery were in jail. Um, and so by the time they got out, they, through a group of advisors decided that they were going to open, they were going to make money off their notoriety, including charging for, uh, you know, to come onto the grounds and then a second um, fee to enter the house. So they were making money on their notoriety in the months after they were, you know, like two months after their release from jail and they were still charged with murder that, you know, the grand jury hadn't even met yet there was a good chance that they could have been indicted, but of course they weren't. So Emily Burns ultimately will be the only person tried in court for the murder. 
could you talk a little bit about how her murder trial played out and also why the case against Dana and Dockery never ends up going to trial? Well, I mean, her trial was very swift. Um, it started on a, the Friday after Thanksgiving at like eight in the morning. It had finished by noon on Saturday. And um, it, it's interesting because it's, it's like, you know, all the witnesses came forward and said, you know, many of the, you know, deputies, I mean, you just imagine you're being, you're this lone black woman in a courthouse filled with white people. And they're, you know, I mean, you probably know the outcome. The outcome is I'm going to be convicted and make, you know, guilty. The only thing she didn't know was whether or not she would get the death penalty. So it was very swift. I mean, the, the, the community wanted someone to pay. Lawrence Williams, who was the likely trigger man, he was already dead. So they needed someone to pay. And they wanted, you know, an African-American person. They weren't going, you know, despite evidence to the contrary, they did, you know, they weren't going to, you know, indict uh, Dane and Dockery. At least we don't think they are. Um and so, and so, you know, it was very swift. She was convicted. She could have been given the death penalty, but she was given life in prison because this is the, what was interesting to me. It's like, even this jury of 12 white men could not bring themselves to give her the death penalty. And so as a, as a result, she automatically got life in prison. And on December 5th, she was headed to Parchman prison. Um, for a life sentence. And, um, you know, Dana and Dockery at this November grand jury, um, you know, the, the sheriff fully expected them to be indicted, but they, they never talked about the fingerprint evidence after that, after it was so clear, you know, it it became all about the ballistic evidence. So, um, so anyway, so they go home, they're not indicted, you know, and uh, Emily goes to prison. How do you see this isolated murder case, the the Go Castle case, shedding light onto the wider story and the wider injustices of the legal and criminal uh, justice systems across the Jim Crow South? I think it is that while the story is isolated, that it's a unique story to Natchez. The it, it fits into the broader, um, you know, our broader threads of American history, whether that's the Jim Crow injustice that was, you know, could be found anywhere in the South at the time. Um, and, you know, the, the town of Natchez and in the story of injustice, it's like, it's, it's just an American story. I mean, there, you know, we know, we learn, you know, through this story of Goat Castle, we learn about, you know, about the domestic slave trade. We learn about the decline of the planter aristocracy. We learn something about um, dark tourism. We and we learn about, you know, Jim Crow injustice. And to me, I also just noticed this sort of like this. Um, if you know anything about Natchez, there's this line of poverty that extends from slavery to today. So there is this area of Natchez known as the forks of the road. And this is where the slave traders 
had their pens in the antebellum period. And that's where the ancestors of Emily were bought and sold as, as were many of um, people living there. And there's this, again, I said, there's this line of poverty starting there that goes into the present day. What's interesting about that is after the civil war, black neighborhoods uh, were created around the former slave trading post forks of the road. By 1932, Emily was living in one of these little shacks, which was literally a stone's throw from the forks of the road. So she's living, she could look and see the place where her ancestors were bought and sold. If you would fast forward to today, the little street, which her home once sat on, the one she shared with her mother, is now, well, it was called Cedar Alley, and now it's called Cedar Homes, which is now federal housing. So there's this like long line of poverty and from which African-Americans never escape in a town like Natchez because of their race. You know, while it is an isolated story, it, you know, as I say, you know, just as all politics is local, all history is local. There's so many stories that are truly American stories, but can be found in a small town like Natchez. What ultimately happens to Emily Burns, Dick Dana, and Octavia Dockery? Dana and Dockery will continue to um, live at Goat Castle, continue to collect receipts at Goat Castle. Uh, there will there will be attempts to evict them, and they will, you know, call in the press to save them. And they uh, will. Uh, Dana will die in in um, 1948, in October of 48. And um, Octavia Dockery will die in, in uh, February '49. Um, after which, these the people they had basically been squatters there because other people had paid the taxes on the property. Uh, so, so once that was over, the, the the people who owned the property were like finally glad to get rid of the two of them, and they basically sold it. It was in Goat Castle. The, the house was raised. And then they had uh, they built a mid-century modern housing development that's still there uh, called Glenwood after the name of the house. Um, and then Emily um, returned to Natchez. Um, she spent eight years in prison at Parchman, which was it's just the worst place a person could have been in the <laughs> sent in the in the 30s. And so, but she survived that. She. Her sentence was suspended in 1940, in December 1940, you know, and uh, she had gone to a mercy court. The governors of Mississippi offered these things called mercy courts. And um, and she tried what before, uh, but this governor, Paul Johnson, um, believed her and released her and she was able to return to Natchez. And she lived there the rest of her life. Um went back to her church, Antioch Baptist Church, uh, where she became a mother of the church. Uh, and she died in 1969. How has the Go Castle murder been remembered? And what does this tell us about history versus memory? This was, for Natchez, its crime of the century. And so, because it garnered, you know, national attention, um, papers across the country were like covering the story throughout the fall of 1932. Um, but once it was, you know, sort of wrapped up um, and it, it would continue to be discussed in the next decade as, you know, in magazines and things like that. 
so America forgot it, but now it just didn't forget. And but the way in which um, it's been told and retold, um, all the focus is in, uh, has been on um, Dana and Dockery, the home they lived in, Goat Castle. And that's that's pretty much it. I mean, they don't they really don't. Uh, in some ways, Jenny Merrill's murder is sort of an afterthought. Uh, and Emily Burns was com- virtually erased from the story. If you were to say, well, who really killed Jenny Merrill? If you were to ask someone in Natchez, they, w- they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know. And she was the only one to, to be on trial, only one convicted, only one to serve prison time. And because it's been all about the just sort of the crazy <laughs> of Goat Castle. And so I, I liken it to something like the kid, you know, memory as this thing that, you know, this game that children play where you sit in a circle and someone gives you a says something in your ear and you pass it around. And by the time it gets back to the first person, you know, the story is completely changed. And, and that's how it is in Natchez. I mean, some parts are still are true, uh, but a lot of it, uh, a lot of it had been lost. And, um, you know, having been down there in, in November to uh, discuss, to share the book with uh, the people of Natchez, I think they're they're all kind of surprised about, you know, the complete story and um, uh, of what happened. And I certainly uh, the family of, of Emily Burns is. Um, who I got to meet uh, during my research, I'm, I'm sure is is thankful for that. What do you want most for your readers to take away from this book? I guess it depends on the reader. I mean, I think historians, I think it's like for historians, <laughs> I think it's a it's a book that's a model for how to write, you know, good history. And I mean, I don't I don't want to be like shy about this. I think it's a it's well written. You know, I think it is. It's a it's a good story. I mean, I think. That's the thing that I think we can do as historians is tell good stories without sacrificing, you know, the sort of the, the, the kinds of things that we do as a story and all that. The good scholarship part of it. Yeah, the good scholarship is still there. It's just the way it's told. Um, for, you know, general readers, I you know, like for them to uh, hopefully, you know, make the connections um, between, you know, the racial injustices of a hundred years ago and the ones that still are here, um, you know, that in, in noticing that things haven't changed in that regard, you know, I think that um, also that back to what I said earlier about local stories have a lot to t- tell us about American history. And so I think that that's kind of what I would want people to get out of it. Well, Karen Cox, uh, Goat Castle was a, is a fantastic book. I really enjoyed reading it. And so thank you for joining us and, and talking about it on this episode of Working History. Oh, thank you so much for um, the invitation. Thanks again to Karen Cox, professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She is the author of Goat Castle, A True Story of Murder, Race, and the Gothic South, published by the University of North Carolina Press. And thank you for listening to this episode of Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1945. 
That was the day that 320,000 United Auto Workers went out on strike against General Motors. The strike was part of a wave of work actions that washed over the country after World War II. Workers were growing more and more frustrated that company profits were soaring while workers' wages remained stagnant. During the war, most unions had abided by no-strike pledges. But once the war was over, workers wanted their fair share of the growing American economy. In just one year, 5 million workers participated in more than 4,500 strikes. The GM strikers demanded a 30% pay increase. Walter Ruther, president of the UAW, also insisted that the company could meet this demand without raising the prices of their vehicles. He asked the company to open their books so workers and the public could see the full details of the company's profits. GM refused. They characterized Ruther as a socialist for even making such an outrageous request. During negotiations, Harry Cohen, the GM assistant director of personnel, told President Ruther, quote, why don't you get down to your size and get down to the type of job you're supposed to be doing as a trade union leader and talk about money you would like to have for your people and let the labor statesmanship go to hell for a while. The GM strike lasted 113 days. The workers won a 17.5% pay increase and improvements to vacation and overtime. But they did not get to look at GM's books or gain any say on how GM vehicles were priced. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Nelson Doctor gave a big stage show. The Billy Go Guy man put the doctor down on the floor. Let him go. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app. Pass it along. Uh, Leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music is Billy Goat Blues by Harmonica Shah, live at the Cove with Jack DeKaiser. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pawzak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. Let him go, let him go. But his booty out of Supreme Court, take it home.
Yes, indeed. Thank you.